0: When I was a little boy, uh, it took my family a little while to figure out that I'm uh, left-handed. You know, you don't know these things when a baby is born. It takes a little while to kind of discover it. And actually, one of my earliest memories had to do with my family discovering my left-handedness. And it came in my, uh, my grandfather in Southern California in his backyard. And I, I was just a little toddler, and uh, he bought me as a gift for my birthday or Christmas or something a baseball mitt. And I think it was my first one, you know, so it's kind of a big deal. My, my, my dad's a big baseball guy, so he wanted me to be a big baseball guy as well. But uh, my grandfather bought me uh, a mitt that was for right-handed throwers. So that means that, you know, you're throwing with your right hand. That means you're going to wear the glove on your left hand. And I was just a little guy, and they would kind of throw the ball to me, toss the ball to me, and I would try to catch it with the glove. And then I would pick it up and put it back in the glove, and I would throw it with my left hand, you know, from inside the glove. And I think I think I remember that moment because uh, my dad started freaking out because... Uh, he, was like, he was saying things like, we got a lefty. And I think in his mind, I was gonna be the next great left-handed pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers someday. You know, that's what was happening. The next, the next Sandy Koufax, he, had, he was gonna raise him, you know, kind of thing. Uh, obviously, that didn't happen, but there's still time in my life. <laughs> okay, but, but once we figured that out, you know, just a little guy, once we figured that out, uh, everything else started to make more sense. You know, when it came time to learn to, to write, they put the pen in my left hand. When I played sports, I would throw with my left hand. I would eat with my left hand. Once my handedness was sorted out, it kind of made other things make more sense. And, and I think that this passage that we're looking at today is like that, in the sense that when we come to terms, with the dynamics of the flesh that we read about in this passage and the spirit that we read about in this passage. When we come to terms with who we are and the battle within that Paul describes as the flesh versus the spirit, when we discover that other elements of life and other elements of Christianity begin to fall into place. The basic disciplines of the Christian life become clear to us once we understand this passage because once we get this passage, we realize our need for the disciplines of Christianity, and we also understand why we often resist them. There's this flesh within us that doesn't want to go in that direction. All right, so at the very beginning, I think we need to ask a couple of questions. What is the flesh, and who is the Spirit? So what is the flesh in the New Testament? At its base or at its root, uh, the word that Paul used in the Greek language that he wrote with is the Greek word sarx. Uh, it's a word that can mean the body or natural physical desires, bodily appetites. Uh, but Christians took that term, the flesh, and they used it to describe more than just the body. Uh, some of your Bibles translate it not as the flesh, but as sinful nature. That's closer. That helps you understand Paul's meaning. Paul wasn't thinking that there's a physical realm that is always bad and a spiritual realm that is always good, so we need to try to be spiritual people at all times. Uh, He wasn't uh, thinking of the uh, body versus the spirit. But what Paul thought of the flesh as is the desiring aspect of our whole being that is opposed to the God-desiring aspect, that there's this war within us. Now, in the New Testament, the flesh is used to denote how even some of the best things that we do are stained and tainted by underlying sinful desires at times. This is the part of us, the flesh is, that... Uh, that a part of every Christian that is not yet renewed by God's Spirit it can be understood as any mindset or action or attitude that is not led by the Spirit of God. So basically, shorthand, the flesh is that part of us that seems to resist being led by God, that, that part of us that seems to resist living in the light of God, that, that part of us that wants to do things that are anti what God uh, says that we should do. The flesh seems to be, in other words, that remnant part of us that we inherited from our great, great, great grandfather, Adam. It's still there. It's still pulling against the desires of God within us. Okay, so that's a little bit about the flesh, but what or who is the spirit? Paul says the spirit and the flesh are battling against each other within us. So who is the spirit that Paul talks about here? Uh, Well, the word that Paul uses in the Greek language to describe the Spirit is the word pneuma. Uh, At its base level, uh, it means wind or air or breath. But Paul took that word and he said, this is a perfect word, wind or air or breath, to describe the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God. And so he's telling us that the Spirit of God is living within us. It's a perfect word because the spirit behaves like the wind in that you cannot see him, but you can see his impact in a person's life. Uh, he's like air and that he's the one who gives us spiritual oxygen in a broken and sin rampant world. And he's like breath in that just as God breathed breath into the first man and he became a living being, the Spirit of God is the one who wakes us up to our sin, shows us our need for the gospel, and helps us to come alive before God spiritually by receiving Jesus by faith. These are appropriate ways to think about the Spirit because In Paul's usage here, the spirit is meant to convey that part of us that is alive to God. So the flesh is that part of us that is yet unrenewed, still pulled in rebellion against God. And the spirit is the new heart, the new nature, and life that we receive when we believe the gospel. Now, in this whole section that we're in right now, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul is going to major on the Holy Spirit, and this is really important. I've I've shared with you guys that Galatians is broken up into three different parts, where Paul, in every part, is defending the gospel of grace. In the the first part, he defends his teaching of the gospel of grace. People had said, uh, your message, you made it up yourself, but in the first section, he says, and points out that the early church received the gospel of grace that he preached. In the middle section, which we finished a couple of weeks ago, Paul was defending the theology of the gospel of grace. Some people were saying, you made this up yourself. This, is, this has no biblical precedent. In fact, the law of the Old Testament uh, supersedes and overrides the gospel of grace that you're preaching. But he went back to Scripture to show that this has always been true, all the way from the days of Abraham onward. But here in chapter 5 and 6, Paul is dealing with the ethical argument against the gospel. People said, the gospel of grace that you're preaching, Paul, makes and will produce a licentious, evil, wicked, lazy kind of person. Uh, they'll be a believer who feels that they stand right in the sight of God, and then they'll proceed to do whatever they want to do with Their lives. Some people theologically today call these antinomians. They're without any law overseeing their lives in any way whatsoever. Uh, But Paul here points out that the Spirit is the one who makes us unlike the accusers said we would become as a result of the gospel. Seven times in this text and in the passage following this text, Paul is going to mention the Holy Spirit. Now this focus is appropriate because we've already learned we're not under the law, but if we're not under the law to guide us, then how did the early church produce such incredible people? I mean, you read the book of Acts and the people there are astounding. The things that they did, the stuff that they said, the obstacles that they went over in order to get the gospel to the known world, the holiness that was found in that early church, it's an astounding group of people. And how did they come to pass if they weren't responding to some code or some law that was pressed upon them? How how could Paul the apostle, when he wrote 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection, say, in a non-legalistic way, I worked harder than any other apostle. That's the kind of life that the gospel produced. How could that happen? And in Paul's mind, The how is answered right here. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit working in and through our lives leads us to be able to override the desires of the flesh and produce incredible uh, lives uh, of love uh, as we're led by the Spirit of God. So that's a little bit about what the flesh is and who the Spirit is. Uh, so we have both of these in us. It's, it might be news to some of you today uh, that if you're a Christian, you have a flesh and you have the Spirit. Uh, but then Paul goes on to tell us that this, the, the presence of these two things, uh, it's a war within. Look at what he said in verse 17. He said, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. In other words, what Paul is announcing to us today is that this war or this conflict between the flesh, these desires that we have that are antithetical to the gospel and to God, and the desires that we have that are for God and where we want to be obedient to him. These desires or this war within, it is a normal experience in the Christian life. It's a fact of the Christian life. It's a fact of the Christian life that will never end until we meet Jesus face-to-face and we become like him. And this battle uh, is recognized here, at least, as a fierce battle. Uh, He says in verse 17 that the flesh and the spirit have incompatible desires, The things that the flesh wants, the spirit does not want. The things that the spirit wants, the flesh does not want. What all this means is that Christians should not think that they have the choice to do whatever they want, whether conscious of it or not, our actions at every point are governed by the flesh or by the spirit. We're far from the autonomous individuals with complete self-control that we think we are. Instead, the Bible presents us here as under pressure from either the flesh part of us or the spirit part of us. Now, in the next passage in Galatians, which we're not going to look at uh, next Sunday, we're going to do an Easter message next week. Uh, But in a couple of weeks, when we get back into Galatians, we're going to think about the desires of the flesh and of the spirit. What do they want to produce in our lives? Uh, we're going to discover that the flesh wants to make us sin in various realms, realms like the realm of sex or to practice our own religious forms to contribute to chaos in society or to give in to substance abuses. Just to name a few, that's what we're going to see in the works of the flesh, but the spirit we're also going to, to discover has desires of his own. Uh, he wants to produce basically character that looks a lot like Jesus. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the things that the spirit wants to produce in us. If you're to read that passage and read a description of those two people, you should, I hope, come to the conclusion, I want to be the spirit person and not the flesh person. I want to have the spirit spirit Fulfill his desires in my life much more than the flesh fulfills its desires for my life. Okay, now this news that you're basically a battleground uh, might discourage you a little bit. You know, like you're, I came here today for a little, like a word of encouragement, and Pastor Nate's up there just saying like, you're a war within. And, uh, you know, there's a fight going on in you between flesh and spirit. But I think there's some reasons why this truth can be incredibly encouraging. One that's obvious is some of you might have believed the lie that you're the lone weirdo for whom this is a reality. (laughs) And so the Bible text is trying to help us understand this is common to all believers. This is our experience. There is a flesh, there is the spirit, and there is a battle between the two. But I think there are other reasons to be really encouraged by this reality. One is consider the alternative. The alternative of a battle is no battle. And by the way, that's what we had before we knew Jesus. Bible says in Ephesians 2 verse 1 that before you come to know Christ, you are dead in trespasses and sins. That's not a war. That's defeat. That's annihilation. Uh, So there's a war and that's a good sign. It means God has made us alive and so now there's a struggle. Now, that's not to say that people who don't know God never face a moral conflict within, but what it is saying is that the Christian is under even more pressure because of the presence of both the flesh and the spirit within. But what he's showing us here is that we don't have to be merely annihilated by sinful desires anymore. The spirit can win within us. But I think another reason why this is encouraging is that, this battle is evidence of the Christian life and experience. Uh, one scholar said it like this. they said, we should not become discouraged and think that we aren't Christians if we are engaged in a struggle against sin. You now, when, when Paul describes this war between the flesh and spirit, he's describing the normal Christian life. It's a life that is marked not by perfection, but war. Right? so there's a struggle is actually emblematic of the Christianity that is within. I want to say this today. Temptation is actually not the problem. It's what you do with temptation that is problematic. Did you guys know that the Bible teaches that Jesus was tempted? Uh, Jesus was tempted, it says in Hebrews chapter 4, in all points as we are, yet without sin. In fact, when I think about it, you know, some people will say to me sometimes like, How was Jesus really tempted? Like he didn't, he couldn't sin, you know, kind of thing. And so his temptation wasn't like mine, but I I think that Jesus was tempted beyond what we're tempted. I mean, when he went into that wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without nourishment and the devil himself was bringing temptation against his soul and he withstood it. uh, Don't tell me you've been tempted like to that degree. I never have. Jesus, to the point of death on the cross, uh, facing the temptation to blaspheme against his father, he he wouldn't do it in the worst of situations. So Jesus was tempted. It's it's not temptation that's the problem. It's what you're gonna do with temptation. James said it this way in James 1, verse 14. He said, each person, each Christian is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So what, what temptation is doing is, realizes there's a flesh that has desires within us and temptation is lured, uh, luring us, it says, or enticing us. Those are hunting or fishing words, like a trap is being set or a hook is being baited. And what temptation does is try to use our own desires to try to bring us into defeat. But the temptation and the flesh's desires, they are a fact of life. But then James went on to say, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. What James means is that there's a gap between the temptation and the conception of the desire that births sin. Temptation is normal, but what you do with the temptation is the issue. James finished and said, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. When temptation uh, has its way, and we give into it, then death is produced. Sin is conceived, and sin, when it is full-grown, James says, produces death. Now, sometimes this produces physical death in a person's life. There are sins that we can commit that will literally kill us physically, but I think that, that James is probably thinking beyond only physical death into all different types of death, and yeah, maybe you've known someone who, or, or you're have seen with your own eyes, someone who through some sin, some transgression, some habit that they got into, they destroyed a whole network of relationships. They brought death to the relationships or perhaps uh, a death of emotions, you know, the, the, the soul level being impacted through sin. But there are all different ways that this sin runs rampant. But again, it's not the temptation that is the major problem. It's what we do with the temptation. Now, Paul said that this war within, look at verse 17, he said, at the very end of it, he said, it keeps you from doing the things you want to do. It keeps you from doing the things you want to do. And here's the big question. What did Paul mean when he said that? Uh, Did did Paul think, did did he envision the human life or the Christian life as this kind of like schizophrenic uh, Dr. Jekyll versus Mr. Hyde kind of experience. Was Paul hopeless about humanity? Did, Did he kind of think like, you know, as a Christian, it's just gonna be terrible and you're never really gonna fully do what you wanna do. There's gonna be things that your flesh craves, and you won't fully go in that direction. And there's gonna be things that the Spirit wants in you and you won't fully go in that direction. You're gonna live in this terrible middle ground and never be able to fully do the things that you want to do. Is that, is that what Paul thinks? Is, does he think that we're gonna perpetually just be these torn, tormented souls that will never experience satisf- satisfaction on this side of eternity? I think the book of Romans and other New Testament passages can shed light on what Paul means by this. Uh, In Romans 7, verse 22, for instance, Paul said, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, or in my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What, What Paul seems to be saying is, there is, because I'm a Christian, because I know Jesus, there is this true me now. And that true me can be described as uh, having desires like that he would describe as the law of his mind, like the, the real inner person. And what I really want more than anything as a Christian, Paul is saying, is I want to follow God. I want to be obedient to God. I I want to walk in the spirit. I want to please God. I, I want that more than anything. That's the true me. But attached to me is this flesh. It's not the true me. It's not the real me. In fact, it's the part of me that is awaiting its ultimate execution when Jesus returns. But it's still there. And it is trying to war against the real me, that person who renewed in Christ, a new creature in Christ who wants to follow and be obedient to the Lord. So that's what Paul seems to be saying. The flesh within us wars against our deepest desires. Now, now this logic is right in line with the already not yet truths of Christianity. You know, I'm already saved if I know Jesus, But what am I waiting for? Well, when Jesus comes, I'm waiting for him to bring with him salvation. So I'm already saved, but in a sense, I'm not yet saved. Or I'm already in the kingdom. Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. I'm already in the kingdom. The kingdom is already here, but... The kingdom is not yet fully here. That's obvious to us as we walk around on this earth. We're praying, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I'm already new. I'm already in a new creation in Christ Jesus, but there is not yet the full experience of that newness. I'm waiting for it. But in God's sight and in God's mind, the true you, if you're a Christian, wants to follow and obey the Lord. Okay, all this helps us understand uh, why Paul's exhortations that we walk in the Spirit and are led, uh, led by the Spirit helps us understand why they're so important. If the true you wants to follow God, but you have an adversary within that wants to rebel against those desires, then it's obvious that feeding and nurturing the Spirit within will lead to victory. That's what Paul said in verse 16. That's what he promised. He said, if we walk in the spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Notice the focus that Paul is using. He's not telling us that the focus needs to be on eliminating the desires of the flesh. He's telling us that our focus needs to be on nurturing our spiritual life and that when we do, we won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. In other words, when we are in the spirit, we won't obey the flesh. That's the promise that God is making right here. Now, the Bible does encourage us to, at times, focus on the deeds of the flesh in an attempt to eliminate them. Uh, It's just that we'll never be successful without the Spirit's help. Uh, For instance, Paul the Apostle said this in Romans 8.13. He said, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And that's the kind of radical terminology that Paul uses about the flesh. You want to cut it off. You want to crucify it. You want to put it to death. Those are the words that he uses in places like Romans 8 and Colossians 3 and elsewhere. But to do it, we need the power of the Spirit. This aggressive dealing with the flesh needs the Spirit's power. Okay, so the promise here in Galatians is that when we focus on life in the Spirit, life according to the new nature God has given us, we win. We walk in the Spirit and we won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. So I want to spend the rest of my time just thinking about what it means to walk in and be led by the Spirit. I think lots of us, uh, we, many of us come to church today with uh, ideas of what that looks like. Uh, some of us might think of walking in the Spirit or being led by the Spirit having to do almost exclusively with the realm of decision-making. You know, I'm like, I'm cruising around, and I'm either in the Spirit or I'm not in the Spirit. And when I'm in the Spirit... It's like I'm in the zone, and I'm like, okay, I talked to that person. I'm led by the Spirit, and now I'm going to brush my teeth because I'm in the Spirit. You know, like, we kind of think about it in, in that kind of way. And I think it does include that, but Paul seems to be highlighting something real simple. There's the flesh part of you, but there's the new spiritual nature part of you. Live by that part of you. Feed that part of you. Paul said it this way in Romans 8 verse 5, he said, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit, which is life and peace. Remember, this, this passage that we read this morning, this is an exhortation. I'm preaching it up to this point like it's fact and truth, but it's an exhortation. He says, walk in the Spirit. He's putting it on the Galatians. He's putting it on you. He's putting it on me. Walk in the Spirit. He's he's putting it on them. Be led by the Spirit. So he's putting it on us. He's putting it on me. Be led by the Spirit. We have to remember that. So what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Well, let's go back to that word that I told you Paul used for the Spirit, the word pneuma. That could mean wind or breath or air. To me, this imagery is perfect because it's useful for understanding how divine energy intermixes with human responsibility. Uh, if you went out to the bay on a day that was great for sailing, and just watched sailboats out on the Monterey Bay, uh, you would see human responsibility. Uh, you would see boats where their sails are up; the the, the sailors have put their sails up in order to catch the wind and it's obvious somebody put those sails up they didn't get up by themselves somebody made a decision these sails are going up if you were to ask what powers this boat you'd say well the wind powers this boat but somebody put up the sails in order to catch the wind and I think in like manner there are actions we can do on a regular basis that sets the sails for God's Spirit to drive us along in this new life that he has designed for us. Now, Paul said, walk in the Spirit. That's just a sequential, procedural word. (laughs) There's nothing uh, glamorous about that word. It's just step by step, day by day, keep putting your sails up to catch the wind of the Spirit in your life. So I'd like to think about some of those today. And, And I'm going to use a, a friend of mine, and I use the word friend loosely because he doesn't know me, but there's a theologian out there named Trevin Wax who I really love, and uh, he, he urges the church to practice subversive habits uh, that will undermine the desires of the flesh, and I'll, I'll suggest a few of them today, try to illustrate what, what I mean and what he means. Uh, The big three, subversive habits, ways to put the sails up to catch the wind of the spirit. Uh, They probably don't need a lot of elaboration because we talk about them all the time. Uh, You have prayer, Bible study, and church engagement. Prayer, Bible study, church engagement. The data is out. It's very clear. Christians who practice these things regularly in their lives, the sails go up. God carries them along and they grow. They produce more fruit than people who neglect uh, all three, one of them, two of them. So that's a huge thing, that, uh, prayer, Bible study, and uh, being engaged with your church, knowing people in your body of believers. Uh, can these things be engaged with legalistically? Absolutely. Can they be engaged in, in a way to try to earn God's favor in some weird way? Absolutely. But are they meant by God to be sales? For the wind of the Spirit to catch and drive us along? Absolutely. All right? So those are important. Uh, but sometimes I think we stop right there. We think, okay, you know, he's talking about being, being led by the Spirit and filled with the Spirit, guided by the Spirit. So I guess that means I got to pray, I got to read my Bible, and I got to be involved in my local church. Yes, do those things. But let's think about maybe some unique ways uh, that these might be applied. Uh, Let's think about three different people as examples. Let's consider first a person who finds their identity in their career. We talked about the flesh and the spirit. For this person, the desires of the flesh, the things that they're susceptible to, they they are susceptible to finding their worth, their value, their drive, their excitement, uh, you know, their everything in their work environment. For a person like that, should they Pray and read the Bible and go to church? Absolutely. Uh, But maybe they could drill down into some specifics. Like for instance, it'd be good for a person like that to comb through the Proverbs, which speak often and honestly about the reality of wealth or to turn to the words of Jesus in places like the, the Sermon on the Mount to hear his teaching on money or to go to the New Testament epistles and think about generosity, and then to maybe say, I'm going to memorize those passages of Scripture. I'm going to meditate on those passages of Scripture. Uh, Rather than work hard all seven days of the week, a person like this is probably more than likely the kind of person that needs to take a step back and say, you know what? I uh, have to really protect one 24-hour period of time where I'm I'm slowing down, I'm stopping, I'm I'm not checking in on work, I'm with my family, I'm with my friends, I'm with my church, you know, whatever it is that helps me to practice that Sabbath before the Lord. Uh, a person like this, when they sit down at the beginning of the year to plan their year, they should recognize what their flesh is like, and that their flesh is going to basically make a plan that does not include relationships, does not include family, does not include church, does not include downtime, but is aggressive on goals and pursuits and all of that. And to realize, okay, as I'm making my plan, I need to, I'm the kind of person that has to put into the plan the, the good things that God has called me to. Or let's think about a, a different kind of person. Let's imagine someone who's addicted to and sees most of, the, most of life through the prism of politics. I've had a lot of people talk to me about this over the last few years. Like, I just can't get away from it. It's like I'm addicted to it. And just like, every, I should probably be like less engaged in it, but I just it's overwhelming and, and I'm just so connected to it. Well, a person like that, if they know that that is their fleshly tendency, Uh, they would do well to establish routines where they don't read, listen, or watch any news until after they've meditated on scripture each day. That'd be like a really important rule, maybe not for everybody. Like, you don't have to tell like most teenagers, you know, like, hey, I just got to tell you, like, don't get online to read the news before you read your Bible in the morning. Like, that's not a big temptation for them, but it might be for someone else. And they should be making that rule of life for themselves, t- telling their community about it. That this is a practice I need to have in my life because if I don't, then I'm just on my favorite news website and I'm reading that for my devotions rather than reading the word of God. A person like that would do well to set limits on how many politically oriented podcasts or news outlets or social media accounts they consume. They just realize this is the tendency of my flesh. I can't have too much or else it just it, it puts me in a place I should not be. Uh, they could also say I'm going to do a subversive habit of praying for popular politicians that I don't like. There's just something about praying for people that you don't like, and I'm not talking about those Old Testament imprecatory prayers, you know, like God break their teeth and their bones and all that kind of stuff. Like, We're already good at that, but there's something about praying for for people that you're in disagreement with. It doesn't necessarily change your view, but it changes maybe your heart for the person. Uh, they could prioritize eating meals with people of different political perspectives or get engaged in foreign missions as a way to kind of get outside their current political sphere. Okay, uh, let's think about a, another kind of person, because you guys are all really nervous right now, like, oh, no, Nate's <laughs> going to step in it today. Uh, let's think about maybe a young person who's prone to video game addiction. This is a big deal. young man who th- maybe be struggling with that, he could maybe make a plan for more moderate uh, video game usage, and then tell a few Christian friends and maybe a youth pastor or pastor could tell a pastor about that commitment. Uh, He could also decide that each day of his life needs to end with reading a psalm. Should everybody end their day reading a psalm? I don't know, but for him, it could be a good way to say, Uh, rather than like playing games until my eyes fall shut and I just fall asleep on the couch, I'm gonna end the day with this like intentional psalm where I'm praying this back to God. Uh, He could keep a daily journal that kind of logs what you did the day before because it kind of helps with honesty. Like day before, 13 hours of call of duty. And you kind of realize like, okay, I need to confess this to God. That wasn't healthy. That wasn't good. Uh, He could commit to the subversive habit of serving others, to kind of get outside of his self and build a new story. So various things like this are putting up the sails for the spirit to grab a hold of our lives so that we can overcome the tendencies and the temptations of the flesh. And we can create these by simply thinking through our temptations and building practices that counteract them. You know, are you addicted to social media? Maybe silence and solitude without your phone, obviously, is important for you. Are you, do you struggle with bitterness and laziness, or or, excuse me, bitterness or uh, anger? Maybe a gratitude journal would be good. Uh, do Do you struggle with laziness? Then perhaps service is good. Volunteerism, laying your life on the line. Do you struggle? with greed or with fear about finances, then um, generosity would be a good practice for you because it helps you to trust God and provide for other people. As I said, what this passage is showing us is we are in a war and we are a battleground, so we need to, as Paul said, walk in the spirit and be led by the spirit of God. Uh, In the Old Testament, there's a man who I think for the most of his life, he he actually had a great ending part of his story, but for most of his life, he really gave in to the flesh. It's the story of Samson. He was empowered by God's spirit, had incredible strength that God gave to him, but what did he continually do? He continually put himself in environments where his temptation structure within his flesh was going to be appealed to over and over again. And through a series of compromises, he eventually came to the place where he gave up all of his power, all of his ability, all of his blessing. He gave all of it up in order to pursue the desires of the flesh. His soul was vexed by putting himself in harm's way over and over again. Instead, if Samson had walked in the spirit, uh, he would not have gratified the desires of the flesh. He would have removed himself from those situations. Now, fortunately for all of us today, a better than Samson has arrived. His name is Jesus. Uh, Like I said earlier, alone in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights or on the cross, Jesus never succumbed to any desire or temptation that was out of bounds with God's will. He was able to say, I always do those things that please the Father. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he brought with him a newness of life for every person who believes in him. So what that means is that this passage we looked at today is true. The Spirit of Christ births in us a new nature, one that is responsive to God's leading to make us more like Jesus. But this passage shows us as well, that the old desires still linger within us. They're awaiting their final death one day. But because we're influenced by both the newness of the Spirit and the oldness of the flesh, it's wise for us to pursue, feed, walk in, and be led by the Spirit. It's the Spirit who reforms us, guides us, makes us look more like Jesus than our selfish desires. But I think what I'm trying to show you today is that this is not automatic. As Paul said elsewhere, we have to work out what God has put in us, Philippians 2, verse 12. We're called, in other words, to be involved And when we submit ourselves more and more to God's spirit, he transforms us more and more into Christ's image. So uh, hopefully that is helpful to you to understand, okay, this is my construct. This is who I am if I'm a Christian. So now let us be a people who more and more figure out ways to feed and be led by the spirit of God. Amen.